Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to today's guest speaker, Chris Dew, for this week's message. What is up, Vineyard Church family? Chris Dew here with you. I'm so, so excited uh, to be back with you. I, I love our church family. Um, and it's always an honor uh, to be able to preach God's word and uh, to be with you guys. So let's pray together and then we'll jump into uh, the message. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would meet us here right now. Uh, that, uh, that all over, uh, if we're in uh, a church building or in uh, a living room or in the youth services building downtown, that we would encounter you, the living God of the universe. Uh, I'm weak, you're strong. God, I pray that you make yourself clearly known to us and that you'll lead us in your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many people have ever been accused of something that you actually didn't do? Has anybody ever had that experience before? Um, a lot of you guys have heard the story of how I got arrested on my honeymoon. Yet, just in case you haven't, here's a little piece of it. Um, I have a sketchy past. As a lot of you guys know, I was a heroin addict and drug dealer and all that stuff. Um, yet in 2010, I heard about Jesus, and ever since then, my life has been forever changed. I've been clean and sober, um, had all my legal stuff handled and taken care of, yet I'm on my honeymoon in 2017, um, and we had to fly back and to come through customs. And as I'm in customs, I'm handcuffed and arrested. And uh, the people who arrest me are like, you have an active arrest warrant right now. And uh, man, th this is not looking good for you. In that moment, I knew I didn't have an active arrest warrant, or I was pretty, <laughs> I was pretty sure I didn't have an active arrest warrant. I was like, listen, guys, this is, this is not it. Like, I, I've done nothing wrong this time. I used to be bad, but like, I, I was on my honeymoon. I've been married eight days trying to talk my way out of this. And in that moment, I had this uh, feeling in me of injustice, of I'm doing nothing wrong, yet I'm being falsely accused of something. I was not quiet though, like Jesus was in our scripture that we're gonna look at here. Um, I, was, I was like, man, I'm, I'm innocent, please don't arrest me. And all throughout history, people have had this, this experience. That I recently read an article about a, a man named Jerry Thomas. Uh, he was falsely accused of, of some heinous crimes, um, and he was in jail for 30 years until they realized that he was innocent. Can you imagine that? Every day waking up in a prison, in a jail cell, knowing that you're innocent, yet uh, that you've been charged with this crime. For 30 years, Jerry Thomas woke up and was like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm innocent, yet I'm in this prison. I can't even imagine internally the feelings of injustice that he felt. Can you imagine that? And in our scripture that we're going to look at here, Jesus is falsely accused. He's been healing people. He's been hanging out with his closest followers, teaching about the kingdom of God. 
blessing people uh, and, and, and helping culture at large ultimately. And then he's praying in a garden and all these people come up and he's arrested, falsely accused, slandered, spit on, whipped, and eventually crucified on a cross. He was innocent in every way, yet he was condemned. This is ultimate injustice. Yet as he was screamed at and spit on and accused and arrested and and all of these things, he remained quiet. He was not like me, screaming at the officers in the airport trying to get free, but rather he remained quiet. And all through the early church as well that we see this same posture. Um, There's an article uh, that I recently read by Tim Keller, and he explains that uh, there are five primary things that the early church was known for, um, even in this, this crazy time of having these exclusive claims about who Jesus is and, and, and um, you know, about eternity and about all these things about Jesus, yet still, all these people are coming into the faith. And he asks, like, man, why are they coming to the faith when, like, they're being accused and persecuted and these exclusive claims about who Jesus is? And he offered up five things uh, that the early church was really known for that drew people into the loving kindness of Jesus. Here's the five things. One is the sanctity of life. They cared for babies, right? In the ancient times, they didn't have abortion a whole lot, um, yet uh, they had this thing called infant exposure. And ultimately what that meant is that they would leave infants out in the elements who would either be killed or sold into slavery or prostitution. Yet the Christians, the Christians were the one that said, no, 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 we're not going to do this. We're going to care for the baby. I'm going to raise this baby, the sanctity of life. Uh, uh, The next thing they were known for was um, as a sexual counterculture. In uh, the ancient times, uh, the men would sleep with whoever they wanted, really, right? They'd sleep with uh, other women. Uh, They'd sleep with slaves. Uh, They'd even sleep with children. Yet Christians came up as this crazy counterculture saying, no, 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 sex is meant for one man and one woman for life in the context of marriage. And this was radically counterculture then as it is right now, except that drew people into the Uh, faith into the church. The third thing they were known for was being multi-racial. And oftentimes in the ancient times, as as it oftentimes is today as well, people stayed in their own tribe, right? They were like, man, we're hanging out with our family, our tribe, our race, yet the church was radically diverse. There was all races, all classes, all ages, all in the family of God, spending time together, worshiping God together, and this was radical as well. The uh, the fourth thing the early church was known for was hospitality to the poor and suffering. Christians cared for the sick, even at the expense of their own health. This was all different kind of religions and races that they cared for. They did not just care for their own. They cared for 
everyone. And then lastly, number five, is that the early church was known for forgiveness, reconciliation, and nonviolence. The early church was under extreme persecution. That as they claimed faith in Jesus, as they claimed he was Lord, uh, that they were accused and arrested and persecuted in so many ways, yet they did not scream and say, no, this is unjust. No, no, no. They did not even retaliate. They prayed for their accusers. This is radically counterculture. And as you look at this list of five things from Keller, of the early church, what they were known for that drew people into the faith, two of these are oftentimes talking points of the right. Two of these are oftentimes talking points of the left. And then the last one that we're going to talk about today um, isn't practiced or celebrated by either one. And if I'm honest with you guys, this is one of those practices that, that is hard for me. It cuts against the grain of my flesh. You know, there's lots of things that when I'm asked, uh, you know, to teach on it, I'm like, yeah, this is, I'm in for this, right? Spiritual warfare. Let me teach on that. I'm, I'm in. Flipping tables, Jesus. I'm, I'm there. I can do that. But this one, <laughs> it cuts against the grain of my flesh. I watched UFC for fun. I drank straight espresso this morning when I got up. Like no water, no milk, just espresso. I watch crazy movies like Scarface and Gladiator. This type of posture of forgiveness, reconciliation, and nonviolence cuts against the grain of my flesh. Yet here's the thing I know, is that every time that my way, my flesh, comes up against the teachings of Jesus in the Bible, I've got to give way to the teachings of Jesus. Scripture says that, he makes known to us the, uh, the path of life. In his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And this is one of those ones where I've got to um, choose. I say, I don't like it. It's hard for me. It cuts against my flesh. Yet I know this is the pathway of life. Here's how Jesus explains it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yet this I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said, Vineyard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yet this is what Jesus says to us. We're called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I'm gonna split that up and just kind of split it up into two different phrases and talk about each one. Here's the first one. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Have you ever had a friend that just turned their back on you? Or that you're like, man, I thought this was gonna be a friend for life. You know, like we, we, we were like, man, we're gonna be best friends forever, like BFF, let's go. Yet then something happens and they turned on you. This is what's happening in our scripture, uh, you know, that we're looking at here today is that Jesus had 12 guys that were like his closest people, right? He, he handpicked them. These were going to be the guys that he hung out with, he ate with, he t 
taught about the kingdom of God, and then he handed everything off to. And he's here in uh, the garden with 11 of them, praying, and they're falling asleep. They're having a whole uh, conversation around sleep and, and all this. And then up comes the 12th. And he's got this angry group of people with him with clubs and swords, and it's an angry mob. And they come up to Jesus, and Jesus knows what's happening already. Yet Judas comes up and calls Jesus teacher. He kisses him on the cheek, which was the sign to the angry mob, this is the guy. This is the guy that we're coming up against. This is the guy that you need to arrest. And they do. They start arresting him. I don't know about you, but if I'm Jesus in this moment, I want to go UFC on Judas, right? Like, let me let me punch him in the mouth because this, this, like, you abandoned me. You turned your back on me. I'm getting arrested. Yet Jesus remains quiet. Peter, though, you can always count on Peter to make a scene. He sees what's happening. He pulls out his sword, tries to chop off a guy's head and accidentally chops off his ear, right? Can you, can you imagine that scene? Like Jesus is like, okay, let's, let's be calm, everybody. And Peter's like, uh-uh, let's get the sword. Tries to chop his head off, slice his ear. And then Jesus, he reaches down, he picks up the guy's ear and puts it right on him again. Yet Peter's response is the age we live in, Vineyard. This is where our culture is at large in general, is that we don't have humble conversations about things anymore. We want to swing our swords. We live in the age of outrage, right? If you vote like me, if you vote like you, then, then we're good, right? We're friends. I'll love the people that vote like me. But if you don't vote like me, if I hear you voted for that person or this person, Oh man, we are enemies and I'm going to literally hate you. If I'm honest, I think why this is, Vineyard, is that I think what happens when we lose out on the understanding who our real enemy is, that's when we start turning other people into our enemy. Scripture says that we do not fight against flesh and blood, yet against principalities in the heavenly Places. Ultimately, what this means is that we have a spiritual enemy. Satan is our enemy. Yet when we lose that understanding, right? When we're like, no, we don't really have a spiritual enemy. Like we're post-enlightenment. We don't need that. What happens is we start to turn other people into our enemies. I want you and I to go gladiator on the devil, right? We do have an enemy. Man, let's go start... Scarface, Gladiator, UFC on that, right? But not on other people. They are not our enemy. We do not fight against flesh and blood, yet against principalities in the heavenly places. Our weapons against the spiritual enemy is prayer, not outrage on Twitter and Facebook. His kingdom will not advance through force, yet by sacrifice. The kingdom of God will not advance through retaliation, but by reconciliation. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, love people that look like you, vote like you, act like you, are in the same class as you, but hate the other. Hate 
your enemy. Yet Jesus says he's got a better way. Yet this I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is being arrested, accused of things, spit on, whipped, yet he's innocent of all of it. He's on trial in the middle of the night, which is a sham trial. All these accusations are being thrown at him, but he sat there quiet. All the way back in Isaiah 53, which is in the Old Testament, and it's a prophet, um, he prophesies about this occurrence. He prophesies about Jesus. He says this in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is acting like this ultimately uh, in response you know, to this prophecy of the Old Testament. This was way before Jesus existed, yet it is speaking of Jesus. All these accusations, he's completely innocent, yet he responds with silence. And even in uh, you know, the book of Acts, if we flip over to Acts chapter t- t- 7, we have this account of a man named Stephen who gives this radical speech, right? He's trying to advance the kingdom, trying to advance the gospel. He preaches this radical message, highlighting lots from the Old Testament. It's a pretty harsh message if you go and read it, right? He was, he was really bold. Yet at the end, what happens is that everyone listening um, hates what's happening. Right? They're like, man, he's speaking all these lies and they run at him and they ground their teeth and they throw things at him and they start stoning him. And as this is happening, as he's being literally crushed and killed, he prays for the people who are harming him. He says, Lord, please do not hold this sin against them. And then he dies. And through that encounter, lots of people came to faith in Jesus, including the apostle Paul. He was there, and eventually he comes to faith in Jesus. And I believe that one of the ways that we are going to advance the kingdom of God on earth in our age of outrage is through enemy love and praying for those who persecute you. On uh, the screen right here, uh, that we have this thing called the gray matrix. And ultimately what this is, is a tool uh, that you can kind of chart where people are in their faith journey in order uh, to understand how to help them, right? So in the top right quadrant uh, that we have people that are Christians, right? They're open uh, you know, to the things of God and have a high awareness of Jesus and his teachings and his kingdom, right? These are oftentimes Christians. I mean, therefore, how we respond to them is through challenge, right? We're going to be like, man, we need to be more committed to the faith and we're going to challenge people there. In uh, the bottom right quadrant, it's people who are open to the faith, yet really don't have much understanding of Jesus, right? They're curious about the things of God. 
and how we help them is through content, right? If you are open uh, you know, to the things of God, yet you don't really know, then our job is to teach you things in order that you are like, man, yeah, absolutely, that makes sense. I'm going to come into faith in Jesus. I'm going to follow him. Uh, the left quadrant all the way at the, the bottom are people um, who are closed off and have a low awareness of uh, you know, the faith. And how we respond uh, to those people is through um, proving that the faith is credible. Right, so um, explaining it's a coherent worldview, it makes sense, uh, you know, through a kind of apologetics, it's not a fairy tale, it's rooted in history, all of those things. But the one I want to talk about right now is the top left quadrant. And ultimately people here have a high awareness of the Christian faith, yet are very closed to it. Here are people uh, that are raised in the church possibly or have an understanding of, of who Jesus is, have heard uh, you know, the gospel before, yet are very closed off to it. And this is where a lot of my friends and family are and um, a lot of people in our country are right here. And what uh, the author of this uh, just kind of example um, explains to us is how we win them is not through screaming angrily, yet it's through beauty. We've got to compel them through the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom in order to come into the faith. They will not be one with just ethics. They know it already. They know the ethics of Jesus and they're hostile to it. How they're going to come into the faith is through compelling beauty. It's through you and I living out this type of enemy love and the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom. So what does this practically look like for you and I? Well, um, I think a very practical one for me is that holiday traffic is a real thing. Right, like like holiday traffic's everywhere, man. Around the malls, it, it, it's like people drive crazier around the holidays. And I'll be honest with you, I want to bless people out. You know, when they're when I'm um, just kind of hanging out driving, and I get cut off, or there's a slow driver, Lord help me, in the fast lane on the highway. I want, man, everything in my flesh wells up and I want to scream and, and, and uh, you know, explain who they are, who their mama is, right? I want to go UFC on them. But, but, but a great way to practice this is through every time that that happens, right? You're cut off in traffic or there's a slow driver in the fast lane or someone's out in public acting wild. Pray for them. Hey, God, I don't know what's happening right now in their life. Um, I don't know why they're rushing around like this. I don't know why they're driving so slow in the fast lane, but would you bless them? I pray this Christmas that you would pour out your blessing on them, uh, bless their family, bless all of them. And, and I'll be honest with you, as that happens, our hearts will be transformed into the image of Jesus. Um, another one is at holiday gatherings with family. I don't know about you, but at a lot of holiday gatherings, uh, man, there's people there who have crazy politics on both sides. And I want to flip table Jesus in that moment, like ruin Christmas dinner, ruin things, you know, like that. That's my posture. Yet a great way to practice this 
is as all that starts happening and you hear these crazy ideas and stuff, j- j- just pray for people. Hey, God, I, I, I bless them. Bless their family, right? Rather than blessing them out, we choose to bless. Or even people that slander you or, or you know, speak evil against you in some way and you hear about these things rather than screaming at them. What if we loved our enemies and prayed for those who persecuted us. Um, One little caveat I want uh, to give here. If you are in an abusive type of relationship, I'm not talking to you in this situation, right? How you approach that is not by just, uh, you know, being slandered and, and all these things and letting it happen over and over again. That is abusive and that's toxic. Let somebody know about it. Call the church, have a care conversation with somebody, let us know what's happening in order that we can get you help. Yet if that's in the past, right? If it was abusive, if you don't have contact with that person anymore, I would encourage you to pray for them. I had a few things that, uh, that I was hostile to people against uh, that happened to me uh, when I was younger. And I had somebody recommend that Uh, that I pray for those people on a daily basis and I would pray for everything that I wanted in life for them. I still have some people in my life that I pray for like this. And I think that's a very helpful way that we can apply this as well, is that we pray for those who have harmed us in the past. We pray and we do not bless. We don't speak evil of anyone, the scripture says. So as you're driving around, as you're hanging out with family members, hearing all kinds of crazy ideas, as you uh, are having conversation with people or hear of people that are slandering you or accusing you of things or whatever, we pray for those people. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, love the people that act like you, vote like you, yet hate your enemy, hate those who do not. Yet Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is hanging out with his closest followers and uh, he is falsely accused. He's praying and all this angry mob comes up with Judas. He gets kissed and, and, and then he's arrested. Peter chops off the dude's ear. He picks it up, puts it back on. Yet Jesus was silent as he was being falsely accused. All through the early church, we see this in Stephen and, and, and all through church history that the church did not retaliate, but they loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them. Our culture says, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But Jesus says, this is the better way. This is the pathway to life. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And as a UFC watching, espresso drinking pastor. I need to be formed in this way of Jesus. This is not natural for me either. Yet this is the pathway to life. Yet the one question I had about this text, because I read this a bunch of times, spent a lot of time on this message, just hanging out in the scripture, in this story, and just had this one question that kept popping up, and it was this. What was the reason for Jesus's silence? I get the prophecy in Isaiah 53. I understand that he went to the cross, but, but, but why? 
why would Jesus let this happen to him? Why would he remain quiet? As he's hanging out in this courtroom, um, hanging out in the middle of the night, all these false accusations are coming up that aren't agreeing, and there's all this confusion happening. The high priest finally stands up, and he's like, this isn't going like I planned. I wanted this to be easy, but he stands up and looks Jesus in the face, and he says, hey, all that stuff is good, but I want to ask you this question. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the most blessed? And Jesus responds, I am. Now, as I read that phrase, I am, all these passages in the Old Testament came to mind where God himself called himself the I am. And Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Here Jesus quotes a few Old Testament passages, ultimately saying, I want you to get this, ultimately saying, I'm not just the Christ, I'm not just the Messiah, I am the God of the universe. Jesus answers the high priest's question with one step up. He says, you're asking me if I am the Messiah, I am, but I'm greater than that. I am the I am. I am the creator of the universe. And the high priest understood what was happening. He tore his garments and he said, this is blasphemy. This is blasphemy. He's claiming he's God. And he is. The man standing in this courtroom, the man who's being arrested and tried, is not just another false prophet. He isn't just another guy claiming these crazy things. He is the Son of God in the flesh. And he's being arrested and falsely accused. But that even questions this even more. If he's truly the God of the universe, the Son of God, why would Jesus remain quiet? Why would he take, he could call legions of angels down. He could call legions of angels down and he could be freed immediately. He could smite everyone in the moment, yet instead he remains quiet. And I think that the key to this question is found in the strangest two verses in this whole passage. If you flip down and look at verses 51 and 52 with me, gives this weird, strange piece of the story that's almost like an interruption. It says this, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, yet he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> I don't know about you, but the first 11 times, 12 times I read this, it was like, man, what? Like in, in all this drama that's happening with Jesus, the son of God in a garden, praying, has all his followers, his angry mob comes up with whips and, 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 and swords and stuff. Guy gets his ear chopped off. And then a guy runs away naked. At first I was like, man, the, the author of this passage, man, like 
he, he has a sense of humor, right? He just wanted to throw this in there because it's real funny. I love Mark. Thank you for doing that for, uh, you know, our enjoyment. But I think that this is actually uh, the key to the whole passage. As I was kind of thinking, why would this little thing be in there? I got thinking of another time that, uh, that people were in a garden. And all the way back in the opening chapters of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve hanging out with the God of the universe, enjoying him, enjoying each other, enjoying creation. Yet then sin entered into the world and Adam and Eve realized what? Well, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And eventually they were exiled from the presence of God, from the Garden of Eden. And I think this little two verses right here is meant, you know, to point us way back, all the way to the opening chapters of the Scripture. Ultimately meant to remind us that Adam and Eve turned away from God, realized their nakedness, and were exiled from the presence of God. They abandoned the way of God. And just like then, all the closest followers of Jesus do the same thing. They abandon Jesus. And I think this is why that Jesus remains quiet. He loves hurting people. He loves sick people. He loves the people that turn away from him. It's his love for those who have scattered and abandoned him that he suffered. It's our sin. It's Adam and Eve's sin. It's the closest followers' sin. And it's your sin and my sin that made him stay quiet. Love for broken humanity was the reason, is the reason for his silence, his love for his enemies in order to pay for our sin. All of our sin was put on Jesus on the cross and all of his righteousness now clothes us. He atones for your sin and my sin. This is the reason why he remained quiet. He was tried he was arrested, he was whipped and beaten, and eventually he was crucified on a criminal's cross. And as he was being crucified, he literally prayed for the people killing him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as he finally passed away, the veil in the temple was torn. The veil in the temple was torn, just like the high priest tore his garments and said, blasphemy, yet it really was the God of the universe. Man, the God of the universe tore the veil, tore his garments, ultimately saying, this is true blasphemy. You're crucifying my son. And then he was put in a tomb, but you know the story. On the third day, Jesus did not stay dead. He hopped up from the grave, conquering sin and death and Satan and everything. He hung out for 40 days. He ascended into heaven. And one day Jesus will come back and he will remake the entire earth just like Eden, but more beautiful and more pure and more incredible. 
and we will live in forever intimacy with the God of the universe, all because of Jesus' love for you and I. If you're here and you feel like you've turned your back on Jesus and you're one of the ones that have scattered You're like, things have gotten hard in culture to be a Christian, therefore I'm out. This is not as easy as it once was. I was raising this, but now I'm gone. Jesus remained quiet out of love for you. And his sacrifice on the cross pays for your scattering, and he invites you to come back home. Like the prodigal son who realized, man, the pig pen ain't so great. And he runs back and the father's waiting there with open arms. That's the posture of God for you. And if you're here and uh, you know that you realize that you've been way more like Peter than like Jesus, that you realize that you've been out of line of the way of Jesus and you haven't been loving your enemies, you've been hating your enemies, I want to ask you to repent. Jesus is inviting you into his way, and his way is the pathway to life. His love compels us, and his spirit empowers us in order to love our enemies. And if you're here, and that you do not yet believe in Jesus, His accusers in this passage, they never considered his claims might actually be true. They had already made up their minds and they missed the thing their soul longs for. Have you considered that the claims of Jesus might actually be true? That maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. Maybe he really is who he claims he is, the God of the universe who created everything out of nothing. I want to invite you to repent and believe in Jesus. He invites you into his kingdom and his way is the pathway to life. I believe in your, that as we live out this way of Jesus, our world will be compelled and drawn into God's loving kindness. His kingdom will not advance only by force, yet by sacrifice. His kingdom will not advance through retaliation, but reconciliation. Let's go love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I love you, Vineyard. Thanks again for joining us here at the Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.